Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. I want to confront a lie this morning because a lot of believers struggle with the concept of fasting. And one of the primary reasons could be summed up in this theological statement, the finished work of Christ. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, the finished work of Christ? It's a great phrase and it's a true phrase and it it, uh, accurately describes a very real truth within the Word of God. The problem is, that word, that phrase is not in the Bible. It's true, but it's not in the Bible. And that phrase has a context to it. There's boundaries to that word. And if we take that word out of its context, out of the boundaries God set for it, and apply it to other areas of our Christian walk, it creates apathy. We, we, we end up in neutral because we think, well, Jesus did it all. We even have those songs, Jesus did it all. Well, you know, I won't suffer through it. It's an old song. It, uh, it's an old voice. It, uh, but Jesus did it all. Yes, he did it all within the context of which we are speaking. But then we have this verse, phrase, verse. I'm going to make a new word if I'm not careful. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. This is Paul talking to the, the, uh, the, the Colossian people, the, the church there, in the city of Colossae. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Now listen to this. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. want that to settle in for a moment. What he is saying is that there is something still lacking to what Jesus purchased. What Jesus, well, I would back up on that. Not what he purchased, but there's something still lacking for the full work of Christ to be accomplished. And Paul said, it's my job to fill in the gaps. Jesus suffered for me. But there's still some suffering left in the cup for the, the, the finished task to be, or the unfinished task to be completed. And so Paul said, I'm taking that load on me and I'm going to step in here and I'm going to fill up in my body the sufferings of Christ, the afflictions of Christ. Now that goes contrary, that verse goes contrary to what many look at when they think of the finished work of Christ. So we have these two equally true concepts. The finished work of Christ. And then over here, missiologists often use this phrase. The unfinished task. The expansion of the kingdom. That every nation and tongue would hear the gospel message. Jesus made it clear, I'm not coming back until every nation hears the gospel of the kingdom. So we have this tension. The unfinished task, the finished work of Christ. Well, which one is true? Uh Uh-huh. They both are. But they both have their context. 
And if we take either one of them out of their context and apply it to the context of the other phrase, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. So what is the context of this concept, the finished work of Christ? When we speak of the finished work of Christ, we're talking about Jesus completing our salvation. He paid the price for you to have access to the Father. He paid the price so you and I could have a relationship with God. But this verse does not apply to the expansion of the kingdom. Ministry. And we need to understand that. Because fasting and prayer, intercession, does not belong to this this area. Now, you could say prayer, the, the prayers of intimacy, soaking, spending time with the Lord, letting Him love on you and you loving on Him. That would fit within the context of the finished work of Christ because it was the finished work of Christ. He paid the price so that I could then have access to the Father and I could enjoy that intimacy. But when we begin to talk about intercessory prayer, when we begin to talk about spiritual warfare, when we begin to talk about fasting and, 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 and just... Uh, travail for the salvation of our loved ones, for breakthrough in a city or a nation, for effectiveness in the gospel. That does not belong to that category. And it's very important that we understand that. Because I run into people all the time, and I've told this story before, but I'll never... It was about probably 15 years ago, probably 16 years ago, uh, w- there was a group of us pastors that used to pray together, and, and uh, the guy's a good friend of mine. I love the guy. He's, he's a man of God, and I, I've, I've seen the, I just love the guy. But he, he told me one time, he said, I heard you guys at Heartland fast a lot. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a subjective comment, I mean, compared to what? And, uh, but he said, I heard you guys at Heartland fast a lot. And he, then he said, you know, I'm too rooted in grace to fast. And the implication was that the more you understand grace, the less you will fast. The implication was he was applying fasting to the finished work of Christ. And because Jesus paid it all, and he, through his grace, drew me in and gave me salvation, I don't need to fast. Well, that's great when you live here because there are people that, uh, that practice fasting within this context. They're fasting to gain favor with God. They're fasting to please God. They're fasting hoping that some form or fashion God will finally be pleased with them. And that's a lie. I was born pleasing to the Father. And I was born again even more pleasing to the Father. I don't have to fast to have access to Him. I don't have to fast to please Him. I am in, and I'm a son, and I can enjoy that access. But when you take it out of this context, salvation, my redemption, my access to the Father, I'm saved, hallelujah, but it doesn't end there. When I was brought into the family as a son, I became a co-laborer with Him in the expansion of the kingdom. And many people don't have a revelation of that. They think this whole thing of Jesus' death was simply so we could could just absorb it on ourselves personally. I have a personal relationship with God. But the fact is, He saved me, 
And now he wants to use me. A child lives in the household, but doesn't pull his weight. (laughs) He's just a consumer, and rightly so. But a son, a full-grown son or daughter, they they take part in this thing. They're they're investing. They take part of the load. They have responsibilities. In Scripture, where it says, like in 1 John, it says that... uh, to all believe, who believe in John chapter 1, not 1 John, John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, says to all who believed him, to those who, uh, to, to all who receive him, to those who believe on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The word there is technon. Literally means born one. In the Greek, there is a distinct difference between being a child of God and being a son of God. The word son it looks, I haven't, I haven't looked it up in long enough, and I don't know Greek, but the, the word looks like it would be pronounced something like hoesis, something to that effect. But it literally means someone who's come of mature, maturity and age. That was embedded in Roman, Grecian, and even Jewish culture. The Jewish people today have a bar mitzvah. You go from being a child to a son through a bar mitzvah. The Roman people, they would take someone, they would take a, a son born to the father, and they would have a, often the more wealthy families would have a pedagogue, a, a male nanny, so to speak. And interestingly enough, in Galatians, Paul attributes this concept of a pedagogue, or someone that's a, a male nanny that's an instructor, and he's, he's, he's in, uh, training that son. He's trying to bring him to maturity. He's, he's forcing with discipline externally to make that son do what one day through maturity he'll do on his own. And once he's doing it on his own, he's moved into sonship. And it was a big deal. They would have a ceremony and you became a son. And so when scripture talks about the sons of God, it's a different deal. It's about maturity. I am born again as a child of God. I receive from Him. It's a free gift. It's all on Him. Hallelujah. And if I don't have that settled, I'll get real funky when I try to get over here in ministry. When I try to be used by God, if I'm not settled in the fact that I'm accepted by God, He doesn't just tolerate me because of Jesus' death. He celebrates me. The whole reason He allowed His Son to die is because He wanted me. He wasn't, he wasn't like, oh man, look what Jesus bought. Oh, now I'm stuck with it. Oh, I got to keep this thing. You know, I don't want to hurt my son's feelings. It's like a bad tie your kid gives you, you know. Oh, now I got to wear it. That's not you. The father sent the son. And the son willingly gave his life. Why? To redeem your value. He loves you. He saw your value. It's the, the picture of the lost coin in Luke 15. When there was a lost coin, the coin didn't lose its value. It was just lost. And lost value can't be utilized. So they pursued it to find the value. That's you. God God redeemed you. And Jesus had to die for our sins in order to redeem our value because we were taken prisoner through our own sins. And so, it's wonderful, I'm I'm accepted, and and often in the early days of our walk with God, we live under condemnation, and we're trying to figure this thing out, and I know for me, I thought, well, I'm saved by grace, 
you know, God gave me another shot, but it's up to me to pull this thing off. And I remember on a, on a Teen Challenge lawn crew, I was 18 years old, just fresh off the streets. We were mowing a lawn, and I, man, I was, I was keeping my P's and Q's, dotting my I's, crossing my T's, trying to make sure I didn't do anything wrong. And something made me mad, and under my breath, I cussed. And I remember this, it's like the world stopped, and I thought, oh, no. I just destroyed what God gave me. He gave me this brand new life and I put a mark on it. And I, it just broke my heart because I had this misconception. I didn't, I didn't understand redemption and the finished work of Christ. But the fact is, as we grow, we are called unto sonship. Where here, we are participants. We are co-laborers. We labor with him. And like Paul, we take on ourselves that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. That has nothing to do with our salvation. But it does have to do with the expansion of the kingdom. And so we need to understand this because this is what God has called us to. And I'm telling you, the intimacy with God is awesome. It's, there's nothing better than intimacy with God, but I'm telling you, there's one thing that runs a close second, and that is laboring with our Father as sons and daughters to see His kingdom expanded. That we, we go out because we want to see the heart cry within Him fulfilled. We take His heart and we live for that thing. And so we fill up in our bodies that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. Now what is he talking about? Well you could draw it as a glass. Because of the fall. Because of the, the way sin ravaged the world. There is a certain amount of suffering. That it's going to take for this job to get done. I'm not talking about dying for someone else's sin. Jesus hung on a cross so you don't have to. But. There is suffering that must be embraced to get this message out, to see breakthrough uh, for uh, just a myriad of things that are connected with the expansion of the kingdom. We go into a region and we say, I'm staking my claim for the expansion of the kingdom of God in this region. There is going to be pushback. And too often what People fail to consider the, the missing component in their theology of prayer is they, they don't have the third component, component, and that is a very real enemy who will oppose you. And he will do whatever he can to inflict pain on your life. So we have God in heaven who answers prayer, the believer on earth who cries out in prayer, and then in between them we've got a very real enemy who is going to create opposition. And sometimes, because of legal rights, the enemy over a region will dig in, and so it's going to take an extra push. It's going to take extra uh, willpower and uh, concerted prayer to begin to displace those things so that we can have an open heaven over a city. And we need to understand those things. And so we have the finished work of Christ, the unfinished task. So we have Jesus uh, or uh, Jesus suffered for our salvation. He suffered for the kingdom of God to come in power. And God has an end goal here, that the kingdoms of this world would be the kingdoms of our God. 
that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The full cup of suffering must be embraced. Jesus filled it to a point, but there's that which remains. Okay, in practical, practical speaking, what does that look like? It may look like you picking up and moving your family to a, a, a very uh, deprived nation. It may look like you and your family going and living in a Muslim nation and giving up the freedoms of expression that you once had, but you do it for King Jesus because you share his heart and you want to expand his kingdom and you're no longer a child, you're a son and a son shares the father's heart. A child has the DNA of the father. He has the father's nature, but a son has the father's character. He's grown up and he's matured and he can bear loads. And so when Paul says, I fill up in my body that which remains of Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. He said, I'm willing to suffer some things for the church. If it means advancement for the church, I'm willing to bear that suffering. And fasting belongs in that category. Now, fasting is us getting under that load. It's us choosing suffering, us willingly taking that load on. But why? We talked about it last week. I I talked about how uh, fasting is a fulcrum by which we leverage our prayers. You You can lift more with a fulcrum, a lever and a fulcrum, than you can with just your physical strength. And the same is true of fasting. Fasting and prayer mixed with, prayer mixed with fasting, you can leverage more in the spirit. But why? It's because of the buy-in in your heart. The crucial role of the human will in the government of God. I'm just going to read you a couple, some notes here and then just comment on them. The believer's will is one of the primary avenues through which God exerts his own will. Let me say it again. Your will as a believer is one of the primary, probably the primary way in which God exerts his will. Now there are other avenues in which God exerts his will. But the the primary one is through your human will. God gave you this organ called a will that you can choose good or evil, comfort or sacrifice. You can choose uh, you can choose Uh, the kingdom of God, or you can choose to just check out. Your will tips the scales. And you need to understand that all the spiritual realm, heaven and hell, are focused on the human will. Because the human will is what gives each one access into the affairs of men. The enemy has no legal right to operate in our life, except that we make a decision to cross spiritual lines and invite him. So if he can secure a decision in the will, then he can begin to inflict pain in our life. And what God does is God invites us in. Will you pick up your cross daily and follow after me? And there, through that, I'm going to exercise my authority, my government, my power, through your choices, your human will. So again, the believer's will is the primary avenue through which God exerts his own will. You can think of it as a pipe that water flows through. If you've ever had, a lot of times you'll run into this in older homes. You pull out, you're going to change your plumbing, 
and there's been a buildup, a corrosion, a buildup in that pipe that hinders the flow. Well, in a, in a sense, fasting is a way to clean your pipes, okay? Because when we have, when there's unders, unsurrendered areas of our life, and I'm not even saying, I'm not talking about things that you're consciously saying, no, God, you can't have these. I'm not talking about living in sin, li- having a secret life. I'm just talking about you not being engaged. I'm not talking about rebellion. I'm talking about going from apathy and disengagement into engagement and throwing your will behind the will of God. There's a lot of believers that aren't living rebellious. They're just not engaged. They're enjoying the finished work of Christ. This is awesome. I'm going to heaven. Jesus and me are intimate. That's great. But if you get intimate with the king, have a baby over here. (laughs) Produce something. Have something that's coming from you and him that others can see. This is a manifestation of the kingdom of God. And so, we have this thing of the the will. When we fast, we're able to surrender more of our will and therefore be used in the release of His will to a greater degree. See, God needs your will. And if He has a little bit of your will, then there is going to be a little bit of release of His kingdom through your life. You may get an impartation Someone may pray for you and you receive a fresh impartation. But if you want to carry that thing, if you want to steward that thing, if you want to retain what you obtained, then you need to deal with your will. And I'm going to tell you, fasting is a way to get at the will. Anybody realize that one? Oh my goodness. I tell you what, my, uh, God shows me my will on a fast. Begins to deal with me about me. And so if we can deal with, deal with our will and come into a greater surrender, a greater yieldedness, then we're paving the way for a greater flow of God's Spirit and of His power and His authority. And this brings us to the purpose of sacrifice. This concept of our will being the avenue of God's flow and our will having to be invested to a greater degree. Sacrifice not only proves our surrender, it actually facilitates it. It's not about proving something to God. God, I'm going to go on a 21-day fast so you know that I'm committed. God already knows your heart. He might show you on the fast how committed you are. Well, let's move on from that one. God, you know, it's, it's, not to, it's not to prove your surrender, it's to facilitate it. It actually deepens our surrender. If we respond right, we have an opportunity to cooperate with God and go deeper into the things of God because God begins to deal with us. And as we yield ourselves in prayer and fasting, as we yield ourselves and say, okay, God, I see this. And, and uh, man, I, I may feel like I really love Jesus, but two days into a fast, I find out I really love T-Bone as well. And as I'm dealing with that, it, 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 gets, it, it begins to put a pull on my, my heart. God, I want you. Lord, I'm hungry, but Lord, I want you. And it's a way to deal with us and to bring that thing to the surface and to deepen our commitment to the Lord. An anemic surrender hinders the flow of God's authority and power through our will, through our prayers and declarations. An anemic surrender hinders God. 
And so what we need to understand, number one, your will matters in spiritual affairs. Do not minimize the power of your will. You decide. God delegated your life to you. And you get to decide whether you open the gate to him or not. Through your obedience, you're you're responding to him. This is not about earning salvation. I'm not talking about you're going to get you're going to have be accepted greater in a greater way by God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your crown in heaven. I'm talking about what you're going to have when you get there. I'm talking about cooperating with God in the affairs of men. I'm talking about God using you to expand the kingdom. For you to produce a greater sensitivity so you can cooperate with him. It's not not merely about asking God to intervene. It's about our yielding our will to his use. As I said last week, your fasting grows your yes. Years ago, I read a book by Andy Stanley called Visioneering. It's, it was a great book. And uh, he's Charles Stanley's son. And like, like I usually do, I probably read the first third or two-thirds or something. But it uh, was a great book, at least the two-thirds. And, uh, but I took this phrase away from the book, and it was worth the price of the book for me. I did get a discount on the book, so. But it said this, what could be is a dream. What should be, no, what, what, what could be is a dream. What should be, <laughs> my mind is not working real good here. One second, let me read this. What could be is a dream. What should be is a burden. But what must be is a vision. Now think about that. What could be is a dream. We sit around and daydream, man, wouldn't that be awesome if this happened and this happened? But then we move, something in our heart engages. And we say, man, it should be. This should happen. Somebody should do this thing. There's potential here. Somebody should sacrifice. Somebody should make the investment to see this thing happen. That's true in business. It's true in ministry. It's true in your family. But there's something different when you go from should be to must be. Because it means that you shift your will into gear. All of a sudden now you're engaged. Because you, there's this thing that burns within you. This must be. And although Andy Stanley was using that in regards to building a church, I think there's a greater application. It's, it's valid what he was talking about. But a greater application in the area of fasting and prayer. That God wants to raise up must-be believers. People that look at the landscape of humanity and say, this must be. That I I can tackle this one. I'm going to go after this thing. And I'm willing to sacrifice to get there. And when we get into the mode of the must-be, then we're willing to fill up in our own body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ in the area that we're trying to tackle. That's what God's looking for. Somebody's got to pay the price. When Jesus finished the work, He secured our salvation. It's as if a a wealthy billionaire saw some disease in a far-off, war-torn country and said, I am going to put my men on the... I'm going to hire scientists and doctors and laboratories and we're going to find a cure. 
And he expends great money to, to find a cure. And then he, then he produces the cure. And he even pays for it to get to the dock of the war-torn country. But there it sits. And even though he paid it all, somebody has to be willing to, at, at risk of their own life, get that thing into that war-torn zone and bring the cure to the disease to those who need it. That's where we are at. And so what God needs from us is a sacrificial heart that will, will yield to him, and fasting is one of the primary ways in which we do that. And the whole reason I'm talking about this is I'm concerned. I hear so many believers talk about they, they just they don't fast, they don't believe in fasting. They, you know, like that pastor, well, I'm too rooted in grace, as if understanding grace negates it. No, understanding grace will fuel your desire to cooperate with God. And he's a good man, he's just mistaken on his theology because we don't rightly divide the word. We don't divide between the finished work of Christ and the unfinished task. Our personal redemption and us filling up in our body that which remains. And so I'm here to challenge you this morning. Fasting needs to be a part of our lifestyle. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you give, when you pray, and when you fast. He didn't say, if you, if you ever feel like giving, someday you might, just keep this in mind, and if you ever pray, and if you ever fast. He didn't say that. He assumed that those who follow him would be hooked by his heart, captured, and be willing to pour their life out in giving, praying, and fasting. They would take upon themselves the responsibility for the expansion of the kingdom. And it includes all three, by the way. Giving, praying, and fasting. I want to tell you, the people who don't give to the kingdom of God on a consistent basis. I'm not even going to get into the tithing thing because that's a whole other subject. But if you don't continually give off the top of what you make, it's because in some form or fashion, you're stuck here as a child enjoying what Jesus bought you. But you've not grown up into the, I, the understanding that I'm a co-laborer. I am a participant. I'm a royal son. And the heart of the king who is my father is also my heart because I'm part of the kingdom. I'm the royal family. And in the expansion of his kingdom is the expansion of mine. I am wed to him and I want to see my king get glory. I want to see his heart's desire be reached. And so we expand the kingdom. And it's all a form of sacrifice. And when we do sacrifice, many of you have experienced it, you end up suffering backlash. The harder we go after God, the harder the enemy will come after us. That whole scenario of man on earth and God in heaven and we're having this prayer meeting where we're interacting with God has a missing theological component that if you don't take it into consideration, it's going to get you in trouble. You've got to understand that there is a very real enemy and there will be backlash. And the backlash, the fear of backlash is the other thing that keeps a lot of believers from really engaging. 
often when there's a fresh move of God in your personal life, there's a fresh, God reveals himself in a fresh way and it's, it's wonderful and you start going after God, it seems like all hell breaks loose. And that's because it needs to. The enemy isn't going to be displaced easily. And we've got to endure that thing. We've got to stand our ground. That's what Hebrews, I mean, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, when it says, and in the evil day, stand. He talks about principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. In the evil day, stand. And when you've done everything you can, what do you do? Stand. When, when you're done, well, you can't even lift your sword anymore. I, I, I'm so tired. I can't even lift my sword. I'm going to stand my ground. And, and I'm, if I'm going to go down, I'm going down fighting. I'll stand. They're going to have to take me off this ground. It's that thing of outlasting the enemy. And a lot of times what happens is people begin to pray and fast and there's backlash in their life and so they get so distracted by the backlash that they let up on the push. And then what happens? They end up having to circle back around the next time God really gets their attention and fight for the same ground they had before because they abandoned the very ground they secured. So I want to encourage you. As you, as God stirs a hunger in your heart and a vision for what must be, and as you engage in prayer and fasting, and you do practical acts of service, whatever that may be. It's like Steve and Brenda. Brenda is starting this ministry for girls that are coming out of trafficking to rescue girls. And Brenda, I am so sorry, but my mind is fuzzy. What is the name of it? Golden Gate Ranch? Garden Gate Ranch. I should have just asked her. <laughs> Garden Gate Ranch. See, that's, that's a sacrifice. They're pulling this off on their own. They're investing their own money. They're looking for a house, to buy a house, to take these girls in. Why? Because there's something in Brenda's heart that says, this must be. Just talk to her for a few minutes about some, some lady being trafficked, and you'll, you'll feel the passion coming off of her. Yeah. I was, as I was just preaching, I just had this thought come in my mind, and I remembered a time where we were just pushing and pushing and pushing, and it just seemed hard. There was a whole lot going on that was painful to a lot of us. And I just remember coming at a prayer meeting that night. And I was going to go to war. Man, I was, I was frustrated and I was in the back just, I was making declarations and crying out to God. 
But every time I'd walk up in the altar, I felt like God was just loving on me. It's like, almost like I was a little baby and he's tickling me. And I'm like, Lord, not now. I'm going to battle. This is not appropriate, you know. It's really what I felt. And so I'd go back there again. I'd come up here and finally I said, I give up. And I came right up here and I called everybody forward. And uh, was going to end the prayer meeting early, I guess. I don't know. It was before we were supposed to close. And I just called everybody up, and I, I, uh, everybody gathered, and I tried to say something vaguely pastoral. It was meaningless, you know. And then Christopher was standing to my right, and I said, Christopher, why don't you say something? You know, why don't you rescue this thing is what, what was between the lines, okay? And uh, Christopher reached out and put his hand on my shoulder. And all of a sudden, I just felt this weight come on me, and I began to bend over. And I thought, what is this? And I looked up, and I knew it's this angel. That I, some of you, I don't want to wig you out, because some of you may not be used to this, but I had an encounter with this angel at several times in my life, and I know it accompanies me. And I know it's a sign to my life. And it was a sign to my life just after I became Hart, Hartman's pastor. I went to Chicago with a, a meeting with Randy Clark, and he was making declarations, and all of a sudden this angel stood in front of me, and I was freaking out, thinking, is this real? I could see it with my eyes closed, and he gave me things. And I'm starting to go over, and I thought, what is this? And all of a sudden I was aware of that angel, and out of my heart, I didn't say it out loud, but I, th- I said, oh, my friend. And I felt this affection from this angel. Now, I don't worship angels. He's, he's a co-laborer. He's, he's a minister to help me because I'm an heir of salvation. That's what the Bible says, Okay. So I, I don't worship him, but I don't ignore him either. He's a help. And I hit the floor. And even as I hit the floor, I thought, Lord, is it okay for me to feel that way about the angels? <laughs> and I felt like the Lord, all of a sudden I remember this verse. It said, Jesus, what, the, the angels were his companions, where we get the word compadres. I thought, okay, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, my compadre. And I was laying on the floor. And I remember laying there and just saying, God, I'm so tired. I'm just tired. I don't feel like I can go on. And all of a sudden, I was laying in these woods, and I knew the passage. I can't tell you what it is right now. (laughs) But it's in 1 Samuel where Jonathan was pursuing the enemy. Remember, he found the honey, and he was in hot pursuit of the enemy. And, uh, man, it was a big victory because Jonathan was one bad dude. You know what he told the enemy? He said, He yells out to him, and he tells his armor bearer, he said, if they call us up there, it's a cliff. It is the worst case scenario to be in as a a soldier. You're at the bottom of a cliff. They're at the top in a defendable position. And Jonathan says, if they call us up there, we'll know it's God. If they come down here, it's not. I'm thinking, I would have went the other way around. Thank you. (laughs) So in other words, if the enemy is lazy, God gave them to us. And they climb up there and they mop up on the enemy and it started this, this momentum and they're, they're mopping up on the enemies. But Jonathan is tired and so he finds this, this hive and he dips some honey and puts it to his mouth and eats it and it says it brightened his eyes. And I knew I was in that passage. It was weird. I was laying on the, the floor of this, on the ground in this forest and all of a sudden I saw the Lord walk up to me. I, all I saw was about from here down. He had his sandals on and his robe And he walked over to me, and I was just laying on the ground. I was saying, God, I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired of misunderstandings and people getting hurt and pain and and just, man, battles. And 
And uh, all of a sudden, the Lord walked up, and I, I could see his staff. And he, all of a sudden, I looked over, and there was a honeycomb. And he stuck his staff in it, and this honey was golden honey, was dripping. And he put it to my mouth three times. And then he told me this. He said, I'm a good father. I always leave a little honey along the trail for you. You see, Saul forbade his, his troops from eating the honey. But God told me, not me. I'm a good father. And as I begin to press into that, I realized the honey is his promises. There's honey in the rock for you. His word is sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And he has words. He has promises. He has promises that will sustain you in the battle. And we need to learn to feed upon them. And sometimes when we partner, over here it's all glory, the finished work of Christ. There's some spiritual warfare because of our wrong thinking. That's, that's fine. Get that worked out. Be discipled. Get over that. And be secure in Christ. But you're not living up to what you're called to until you move over to the other side and begin to be used of God to extend the kingdom. Son, you've attracted me. There's a hole, just a little hole in your chest that's showing your heart. And you've attracted me from afar, son. And that's all I need is a bare heart. I want to press my heart into you and there will be a transference that will go from my heart to your heart and strength upon strength will come. It will let you feel at times like you want to recluse and you want to hide and you want to shrink back. But what I'm pouring from my heart into yours, into that bare portion that is all I need, I will strengthen you and I will increase you in thoughts you've never thought of before, in things you've never thought of before, in feelings you've never thought of before, you will begin to feel because I've pressed my chest to yours, says the Father. So remain open. Even if it's just a little portion or here of bare flesh, remain open. And I will pour into you and you will be refreshed and you will see my wonderful works. In my heart, you will feel at times like, I can't bear this, it's too pure. It's too pure. How do I stand under this? I'll give you strength to, for the transference. I'll give you strength to hold it. I'll give you strength and the heart will be enlarged and my flesh will touch yours and you will be overjoyed and the things that you've called out for in dark places and in lonely times will come to pass, says the Spirit of the Lord. Express his heart like on this, just like this on you. You know, I know as, as a pastor, you get a lot of words, you know, because you, when you're a leader, you just get a lot of words. But I know that the vast majority of words I get is because I'm just the representative of the house. So that's for all of us. That's for all of us. I'm telling you, this thing of deeper surrender to release God's kingdom is an invitation to all of us. You see, there's this thing of enjoying what he paid for. And that is an awesome thing. But Paul said, I want to fellowship with him in his sufferings. He said, I, I don't want God to suffer alone. You know, God suffers. You know, he's, he has, he has an, he's an audience of every vile thing that's happening this moment. 
I heard a preacher say this week that God is in the unique position of hearing the pedophile's cry of guilt and condemnation and also hearing the victim's cry at the same time and responding to both. And there's something that rises up and it says, God, I'm not letting you suffer alone. I want to fellowship with you in your sufferings. That's the invitation. But it takes a deeper surrender because it costs us something. This cost us nothing. I gave up everything. I didn't have a whole lot to give up. But over here, it costs us something to follow God and go with God and, and, and minister and, and release His kingdom. But that's the invitation. And you know, even Jesus struggled with this very thing. We see Him in the garden. What does He say? He's crying out and it says He sweat as great drops of blood. That's a medical condition when you're having, it's, you're like having a breakdown and the capillaries begin to burst and it mixes with your sweat. And there's red sweat dripping down and he's crying and he's, because he knows the cost to fulfill the Father's desire. And he's, he's wrestling with God. But what does he say? Lord, not my will, but thine be done. He's saying, God, if there's any other way, if, if I can get there, if, if, we can, if we can accomplish this, but Lord, not my will, but thine. See, it's this wrestling of the will. He's wrestling his own will into subjection. You're a troubled individual if you want suffering. But there's, there's suffering involved in the Christian life that we say, I'm going to pick up this thing and I'm going to participate in this thing. And Jesus had to wrestle. If he had to wrestle through, how much more, you and I? But it's the great invitation. I'm telling you, there is fellowship with God and his sufferings. I've often said, I've got friends who laugh with me when I laugh, but it's a smaller group who cry with me when I cry. They're my real friends. When I've blown it, when I've been a knucklehead, when, I've, when I have a bad attitude and they're still my friend, then they're my friend. And God is looking for those who will enter into that participation in his sufferings. There's an invitation for all of us. I'm telling you, this church is called to be used by heaven to be a pry bar in the spirit. It's not about our numbers. It's not about how big a church we are. It's how committed a church we are. And I want you to understand when I say that, I am not, that is not to cast a shadow on any church in this region. Each church has its own different calling. And what God is doing in other churches, man, I'm, I'm thrilled. If, if God is using them, Hallelujah. Let's join in and fast and pray that they'll be used in a greater way. But our assignment is to be a pry bar in the Spirit. We are a house of war. And we are called to move things in the Spirit. But in order for that to happen, we must be a company of people that will fellowship with Him in His sufferings. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.